we were talking last time about voting and we'd mentioned a little bit about uh, a guy called Lippmann, who's a, a bit of a critic of modern democracy. He said that democracy was, um, I think the, the quote was, far too important to be left to the people or something to that effect. <laughs> His basic argument is that early conceptions of democracy, including that from the founding fathers of the US, and of course, you know, further back in ancient Greece, were never true democracies in, in the sense that we think about them now. It was a very small number of people who were really well invested and it was really relating to small communities, usually city-states at the most, and where you could reasonably keep up to date with kind of local matters, and you would literally meet up and discuss them and, and talk through this, these issues, right? Same with the founding fathers to some extent in early US, right? And this is so highly divergent from what we actually currently see in modern democracies. People have access only to, you know, what you would describe as pictures or stereotypes of the truth, and can't really understand completely what is required in order to be a good citizen and make good decisions, good voting decisions. So Jake, you want to tell us the, a, a quote that he has on this? There's, yeah, there's a good quote. This is Walter Lippmann saying, My sympathies are with the citizen, for I believe that he or she has been saddled with an impossible task and that he is asked to practice an unattainable ideal. I find it so myself, for although public business is my main interest and I give most of my time to watching it, I cannot find time to do what is expected of me in theory of democracy. That is, to know what is going on and to have an opinion worth expressing on every question which confronts a self-governing community. Right, so basically what he's saying is, you know, even he a professional in examining politics and democracy doesn't actually have time to keep up with everything to really make good decisions on things, right? Yeah, it's overwhelming. Yeah, it's overwhelming. And as we grow our media machines, these pictures, stereotypes as he calls them, and also the tribalism within those, you know, what media we choose to consume makes it harder and harder to receive a balanced view. Um, I think is, is another good quote on that. Want me to do that again? I didn't do an accent last time. Yeah, you try? could. <laughs> yeah, try, do, try do it in an American accent if you want. Uh, I have no idea kind what of a, it sounds like. Yeah, do you know where in America he's from? This is the plight uh, of the know. reader of the general news. <laughs> I don't know if that's worth pursuing. <laughs> if he has to read it, ooh, he must be interested. That is to say, he must enter into the situation and care about the outcome. The more passionately involved he becomes, the more he will tend to resent not only a different view, but a disturbing bit of news. That is why many a newspaper finds that having honestly evoked the partisanship of its readers, it cannot easily, supposing the editor believes the facts warrant it, change position. He's, he's kind of saying basically, yeah, you get you get stuck in these groups, these entrenched ways of thinking, and then it is, it's hard to genuinely be balanced about it, right? Exactly. And he's not the only uh, modern thing to have harked back to kind of ancient Greek ideals. There's Jason Brennan is a political philosopher at Georgetown University. Mm. He published a controversial book called Against Democracy. So, you know, there's, there's quite a few people who are critical of democracy. Uh, and, and historically, in the philosophical tradition, actually, people many people don't realize that that's also very well embedded. You know, Plato uh, famously really disliked democracy and, and thought that we should have philosopher kings. And even Aristotle, who was slightly more pro-democracy, actually, you know, he is the namesake of the term aristocracy. Mm. And these guys, following on from what we were talking about last time, kind of give the, the background to why we're going to be talking about and what we're going to be talking about, uh, voting and the limits of voting. So who should be able to vote and why should we limit who actually gets a say in everything? It's kind of mad because, I mean, you associate Greece with like the, the birth of democracy and, and yeah, you've got these really iconic Greek thinkers who are like, democracy sucks. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, guys, welcome to the show. This is, of course, the morality of everyday things. I'm Jacob. Hi, man. And today, I mean, hopefully this won't show up too much because we'll edit it together nicer, but we're in different parts of the world. I'm recording from our usual basement studio in London, but meanwhile, Ant is off in sunny Colombia. I'm in Colombia sitting at the top of a tower, genuinely with a view over the city at the moment, and it is fucking fantastic. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this, but... I just did. Welcome, guys. You were following on from the voting series that we did recently. One thing also, in the beginning of that series, it's in the episode title, we have a little form where we ask for feedback. I uh, will also contact everyone with a Calendly link. We'll put that actually maybe in this episode. 
So you can book in and chat to us, tell us more about what you think about the podcast, how we can change it, how we can improve it. Um, let's go on with the show. Oh, please do leave reviews. I was going to say, I'm really offended that <laughs> currently there's a, there's a question <laughs> yeah. at the end of it, which there's uh, it's something about, what, what was the question? It was like, who would you want to spend time with on a desert island if you were stuck with one of the two of us? And somehow I'm losing this race, which... <laughs> yeah, Jake seems to be... Oh, we've got seven responses. Wait, wait, wait. Let's get an up to date. Oh, mate. Wow. So what we've got... The there's seven responses and there are three possible answers. It's me, you, literally anyone but these two, right? <laughs> Currently in the lead. Okay, to be fair, I submitted one. One is a fake. It's a total tie you, me, and anyone but us. <laughs> what, two, two, two? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Amazing. Well, thanks for that, everyone. That's, that's the ego boost I needed on this cold Friday <laughs> afternoon in London. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But okay, on with today's show. So like we said in the intro, we are looking at the limits of who gets to vote and why. And to kick that off with some context and, and we'll do the usual format, we'll, we'll look at some important definitions and, and, and then we'll sort of discuss it and debate it. The dominant view among political philosophers is that we ought to have some sort of representative democracy, which we will define in a second. Each adult ought to have one vote of equal weight to each other adults in any election in their jurisdiction. And this view has recently come under criticism, like I said, from friends and foes of democracy. Because before one even asks one person one vote, like whether that's the right policy, one thing you need to do, and this is the theme of this episode, is to determine who counts as part of the demos. The demos being um, the sort of the public, I suppose. What does it literally translate as? Ant- it's Greek? yeah, it's where it's from demos and kratos. Demos being the people, and kratos being like power. So I believe that's the origin of the term democracy. It's ancient Greek, not modern Greek. So I'm lovely percent, but I, I'm pretty sure that is it. But yeah, yes. this problem so, of who gets to vote is is called the boundary problem. Who are the people? Who who's relevant? Democracy, like you said, it's, it's the rule of the people. But one fundamental question is that it's not a small problem because it's a really big issue. Actually. Actually, like whose interests are relevant? Do you encompass everyone? I mean, in the past, there's been quite prejudicial, biased limits on who does and doesn't get to vote. It's been a massive theme of the civil rights movement. So, yeah, it's uh, that's the tricky one, and that's that's the question we're looking at today. Exactly. So, one way of answering this is that the uh, all affected interests theory. And here's a, an explanation from Dahl, who's a philosopher, not Roald Dahl, <laughs> famous children author. <laughs> <laughs> He was also a spy and he also wrote adult books, but they were kind of more sexy. One way we might draw that line around demos, who counts as the demos, is the all-affected interest theory. Dahl says, the all-affected interest theory holds that anyone who is affected by a political decision or a political institution is part of the demos. The basic argument is that anyone who's affected should have some say over that process. In modern USA, you know, this could be widespread. American decisions have global geopolitical ramifications, as do Chinese. So this actually also makes it a bit confusing when you start drawing geographical boundaries, right? Or citizenship boundaries, right? Because if we start saying, oh, if you're affected by something, you should have a say in it, this actually would basically, you know, say everyone should have a vote on, for example, the US presidential election. And I do think to some extent, like there's some understanding of this in the fact that everyone follows the American presidential election, even if we have no vote or are not actually part of the American demos, clearly. Yeah, I remember Dahl discussing that in James and the Giant Peach, I think it is, when they land in New York City. So... (laughs) 
So that's one way that people draw that line. But I think that's often, uh, that's not necessarily a good one. We often, you know, in modern times, we'll think, oh, well, you know, this is roughly what we do. We try and include as many people as possible. But we do clearly have some lines already. Generally, people in prison, the insane. But the one that's really interesting is we draw an age limit, right? Yeah, exactly. And why are these lines being drawn at all? How do we justify them without highlighting some degree of arbitrariness or accepting that we actually don't live in a perfect democracy? It's really tricky, isn't it? Because especially the age one, it's very hard not to see the age age limit as a little bit arbitrary, particularly when you look in terms of the fact that 16-year-olds are being excluded from votes in decisions that are going to have effects on the rest of their life. I mean, I remember thinking that strongly when the Brexit yeah. referendum was taking place. So yeah, so we're clearly already failing the all-affected interests theory, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think the really interesting thing about the age problem is that we, we think that we have very open and fair democracies, but then we have this age limit, which implies that clearly we draw some lines. I think generally it's, you know, there's some sort of argument around like maturity or not being able to but then that's just a, a conduit to then saying, you know, what does immaturity do that stops your ability to vote effectively? Is it some sort of lack of understanding? And then if you're going to say that, why do we only draw the line, you know, on the basis of age? What, first of all, why don't we do an upper limit? Mm. And secondly, you know, why, why are 90 year olds permitted to vote? In fact, in the all affected interest theory, if you think about that over time, they're, they're, they're going to be least affected by the decisions. But also more particularly, it implies that there's some sort of like, oh, these people lack some sort of rationality, which makes them a good candidate for voting. I mean, if we're already living in some like high level form of aristocracy where we're limiting the demos, then why actually, why do we pretend that it's free and fair and open, yet have this rule that we kind of all agree on? And if we think the rule is a good rule, why don't we extend it further? Why don't we actually find more ways to cut out people who are lacking understanding? Because there are surely 16-year-olds who are more understanding than some people who do get the vote. Well, this is it. I mean, there's probably even 12-year-olds who are extremely politically aware. And then you contrast that with as you said, much older people who potentially have dementia, Alzheimer's are actually in no fit state to vote. And also the votes are unlikely to affect them given their relative life expectancy versus the educated 12 year old. And it's impossible not to see it as, as quite arbitrary. And I mean, obviously age is a simple and easily enforceable proxy for capability. Mm -hmm. It's probably done along those practical lines, right? I mean, that's easy enough to kind of accept that it's probably the cutoff that breaks the least resistance um, in general, except from us, which is why we're why we're discussing it now, why we're taking <laughs> taking issue with it. It's simplistic, isn't it? It's very simplistic. And I would actually raise the point that like the current zeitgeist is really one of concern over the decay of democratic institutions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and particularly the ability, as we mentioned in the intro from thinkers like Lippmann, um, the ability of particularly media machines or, or moneyed interests, lobbying interests, and their sway through media to capture attention, manipulate perspectives. And many are basically saying that modern democracy is falling apart. And you, you see populist candidates like Trump actually getting into office. It will lead you to kind of believe like, wait a second, perhaps there are people who are not qualified in the same way that you know, a 16 year old might not be qualified in that they are potentially not voting even in their own interest. Yeah, which is which is definitely, I mean, it's a scary point. It's funny because I know the point is less to sort of focus on the upper limit, but I can't help but come back to that. Like as, as people become older and probably more entrenched in their views and as we have an aging population that, you know, we're going to see see that sort of trend, the volume of those guys relatively increase. It's, uh, I feel like that becomes a particularly scary concern. Hmm. So let's think a little bit. What are the various forms of democracy? We talked a little bit about democracy. I mean, We'll explain the difference between representative and direct, what we currently have and what an ideal might be. And then also what some of these more limited forms might look like. Who might they rule out of voting or who might they prioritize and how may they harm or benefit society? So, so Jake, do you want to tell us a little bit about direct democracy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me let me read you the sort of definition here. So direct democracy traditionally was, I mean, we're talking ancient Greece, right? 
meeting up in the Agora or some sort of local stadium, whatever it was, and arguing out with some procedures uh, what, what decisions should be made. This was strictly limited to a select few. <laughs> you put in the notes, rich white dudes, which to be fair, didn't really change even in like the 1700s when uh, <laughs> when nope. American democracy was started. That was, that was literally the same limit there. But with modern technology, it's not insane to suggest that many more decisions genuinely could be put directly out to the people. You know, you, you could extend these decisions. Very quickly then. So direct democracy um, is basically saying everybody decides on everything that would be the and generally when we think about democracy i think a lot of people you know without without thinking will instantly think oh that's what we have we have this this direct democracy right everyone gets to say on everything Lies. We'll representative democracy and explain why that's not the case jake talk us through some of the pros and cons yeah so the pros here are in principle it's fair and it's free for all there's some argument of the instrumental value of collective opinion you know the, the wisdom of crowds it being a true reflection of what we communally want anyone who disagrees you know you, you sort of have to accept there's a rule by majority there so there's it's basically a feeling of fairness however there are also cons uh, and the main ones as we kind of already discussed is the risk of democratic capture particularly when you've got a lot of disinterred people they're given too much access to, to media it's 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 the kind of Lippmann argument it's what we were saying earlier also it's a lot of work getting everyone to vote all the time there's too much stuff to vote on there's a kind of inefficiency that's introduced and i suppose implied by both of those things is a concern that people won't necessarily vote in their own interest because they just won't be informed enough about what's going on so you end up in a exactly in a bit of a risky situation and actually it's inefficient i should ask and this is is this what the swiss model is or this is my assumption that switzerland does something close to this right do they do they not have a representative democracy i'm sure they literally have a representative democracy but i feel like i might be wrong i feel like they have this sort of system where people have referendums much more than, oh there's uh, a lot there's a lot there's a lot of referendums so like a referendum would be a good example of direct democracy right yeah uh, and we've had them and and you know you could see the controversy around brexit for example and then consider like Oh, actually, is direct democracy such a good thing? Um, <laughs> I, I think I think Switzerland I think Switzerland has a representative democracy, but has a tradition of doing a lot of referendums. Yeah, cool. Uh, I don't know well enough. What, what kind of question is that? Like, oh yeah, isn't that what Switzerland does? I don't know. Why would I know about Switzerland's like? Yeah. You studied you studied politics. You <laughs> not Swiss politics though. You, you just, I don't know. I thought you might have this in your in your arsenal of knowledge, but once again, Anthony, you've, you've let me down. I failed you. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> that I feel like I feel like when people think about democracy that's kind of what they think about and they one presume it's a good thing they're almost so religious about it you know people are like oh the more democratic the better the more but then mm. you look at stuff like brexit and you may be like hmm, maybe more democracy isn't a great thing <laughs> um and then and then and then secondly obviously actually that's very rarely what happens the actual democracies we tend to see are representative democracies so to avoid you know we're saying oh it's very hard to orchestrate these direct uh, question asking uh, sessions to avoid wasting time uh, and the impossibility of everyone knowing tons about everything. Instead, we have a small group of people who we vote for, whose full-time job it is to be informed and to make the decisions for us. Yeah, there's a, and there's a kind of efficiency about that. Do you want to tell us about the pros and cons of that model? Yes. Okay. So obviously, it saves time, right? We're saying like you don't need everyone doing everything all the time. Pre-democracy, uh, pre-technology, sorry, it would have been completely impossible. Uh, even now, like because of the risks around you know digitizing the process of um, of politics, I think there's a lot of hesitancy to doing it. It saves a ton of time when instead of everyone having to decide on things, there's just a few hundred people who have to decide on things. And it's and like we said, there's the benefit that it's their full-time job being clued up, and even then. They'll break into little, you know, subcommittees over things, you know, be particularly clued up on certain things. So that's one. Two, the idea is that it acts as a buffer. It acts, so, you know, whilst there might be wisdom in crowds, crowds can also be sheep that are led astray. <laughs> Yeah, it's a really nice so, visual it, image there isn't it <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> it's a segue from wisdom of crowds but the idea is also that representatives can act as a buffer between people 
voting for stuff that's not in their own interest as an outcome of kind of prejudicial or democratic capture. Um, however, they still can have a say. So it's a nice sort of in-between where like, okay, you have someone who presumably is elected because they're reasonable and intelligent and, you know, can make like level-headed decisions in people's own interest without, you know, being swayed too much by you know, necessarily like partisan thought or prejudicial thought, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. However, Jake, the cons. Yeah, the cons are, um, I mean, one is it, it, it it leads to party politics. So I guess what we mean by that is, um, you know, when you're voting in representatives, they line up with parties and then actually you've got your representative has to, I mean, that's what whips are for, right? So uh, they get told to follow the party line. So you might vote someone in who doesn't necessarily represent your views. I guess that's a way of saying most representatives represent their party and not their people, or or certainly that's a risk. Um, Which is why, so for example, when you think about the UK, when you think about the UK, for example, there's literally a party whip whose mm-hmm. job is to whip the other party members into, into in line, right? The whole point with the with whip thing is that basically you get these career politicians whose interest is actually, you know, swayed by their own stuff rather than representing their constituency as well as possible. And mostly these people are, are parachuted into places and are, are not really, you know, you, you'd think a representative should be like a real community leader. That's mm. generally not what happens. It tends to be it tends to be someone put forward by the party, and people vote based on the party. Yeah, I was going to ask just for trivia. Do you know if um if the the reason it's called a whip is is there is there some sort of reason behind that? Is there some interesting history? I I think it's literally just the, as as simple as it sounds. Like whip people into shape, whip keep people but metaphorically, in line, like, right? Or yeah, metaphorically, yes. Obviously, uh, there's not someone actually with a whip in in parliament. So you could imagine that though you could imagine go back a few hundred years mm. <laughs> some sort of weird tradition in the history yeah. yeah and then the other i suppose the other thing and this it, there's a different flavor of this another con of representative democracy is that you still have this risk of democratic capture right in representative democracy it's a little different you start to have people voting for representatives basically for the quote-unquote wrong reasons right uh you start getting populist candidates you get people voting for charismatic leaders versus competent ones right which would be for example you know how you end up with people who are celebrities uh, becoming political leaders. Really interesting. I think it was, uh, Ro- uh, whatever his first name is, uh, Richard or Robert Ailes, the guy who made Fox News. Um, he was an advisor to Nixon. And I remember specifically he said like, this was when, this was like the, the cusp of TV becoming a big deal. And he specifically, I remember said um, that Nixon was the last president who couldn't also, you know, be a guest on a talk show or be a guest on an <laughs> on a evening show, right? Like <laughs> that. that's part of being a politician now. You, you have to be charismatic, but it's just impractical. Otherwise you're not going to get voted. Yeah, yeah. In- Literally. And, and I feel like that's a worrying trend. I mean, I don't know who's going to be running in the next US election and, and all that. But like, you know, that ever since Trump got in, people have talked about, about Kanye, about Zuckerberg, about all these guys that <laughs> on the surface. Man, I, like, oh I have my, no oh doubt. Oh my God. <laughs> I have no doubt that there's like within our lifetimes, there's going to be a decent number of celebrities running for office. Yeah. On the other hand, out. yeah, I've heard, I've heard rumors of Marcus Rashford for PM in the in the not too distant future. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, so those are the two main forms of democracy that we that we can think about and discuss. Are there, are there other forms worth considering? Yeah. So leaning, so moving away from the sort of democratic theme, I mean, we mentioned aristocracy, technocracies. I've got a definition of epistocracy here. And this is, I don't know, it's something I just, I, I think has a certain appeal as an idea, but I think it inherently has risks with it as well. I'll, let me give you the definition. We can, we can see what we think. Um, this is specifically for an epistocracy. Correct. Yes. Uh, so... And to some extent, epistocracy is aiming to achieve the same things as a representative democracy. Basically, a system is said to be epistocratic 
to the extent that the system formally allocates political power on the basis of knowledge or political competence. In other words, the people who make decisions pass some kind of competency test, they're in the job because, you know, they're deemed to be qualified. For instance, an epistocracy might give university-educated citizens additional votes, exclude citizens from voting unless they can pass a voter for qualification exam, weigh votes by each voter's degree of political knowledge while correcting for the influence of demographic factors, or create panels of experts who have the right to vote democratic legislation. Now, all of that is not without its <laughs> its risks and controversy, mm-hmm. and I think you know even some of those examples might sort of trigger a few listeners into thinking like, okay, this I mean, this sounds like it's a it's a trend towards sort of bias and, and unfair. However, the idea of qualification to lead is, I think that has a certain intuitive appeal. So we should just clarify, take a step back for a second. You explained what an epistocracy is. You had also mentioned the terms aristocracy and technocracy. Um, We can basically say that those are three forms of government, which are, they largely use the same institutions as democracies, but the difference is who you qualify as a member of the demos, right? Who who gets a vote. Uh, And so in epistocracy, uh, people might know the term epistemiology. Uh, it's the study of uh, knowledge, how we know things, etc. So the epi is, or epis, yes, yeah, it is the epis or epi uh, refers to um, to knowledge. So this is saying power to the knowledgeable. You've given some examples there, mm-hmm. some ways that I guess the question is, you can in theory agree with that, but then you enter a whole different realm of like, okay, as a policy, how do we do this? You gave lots of examples. Maybe more educated you are, more votes you get. Maybe some people are disqualified by competency exams. But then anytime that you do anything where you're saying like, okay, we're going to use some policy to measure people's uh, aptitude, for example, there's also some amount of risk that your me- method of measuring is biased or incorrect or to- you know, totally false, or that whoever set it up intentionally has embedded some biases towards whatever suits them. Um, also, this kind of reminds me. This yes, yes, yes. Doing that in an inclusive way is actually really challenging. Yeah, I always find it, it's really interesting uh, slash funny when you hear about policies or, or party politics or things, and it's like you see things where it's like, oh, there's a heavy trend where like more educated people vote against this or vote for this party, right? And it's a weird sort of like juxtaposition of like we do really enshrine the importance of education, but then at the same time, when we look at these policy decisions, even when it goes the you know when the decision is made the other way, but then we're like, oh, but you know, the more educated you are, the more likely you are to think the opposite. We don't then think like, you know, we kind of look at it like an interesting piece of trivia, like, huh, that, yeah, that's fun. Rather than like, wait, no, something is wrong. Like if all the educated people are disagreeing with this, maybe, maybe we shouldn't, you know, do the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. There's an interesting analogy here. And I think Brennan, the guy you mentioned earlier, is an example of a philosopher who actually... Oh, that's the guy, the guy who wrote the book Against Democracy. Yeah, I think I'm right in saying he backs epistocracy. Um, and I think this might even have come from him. But we have an analogy here uh, as to why epistocracy is better than democracy, which I'll, which I'll read for you now. In a criminal trial, the jury's decision is high stakes. Their decision can remove a person's rights or greatly harm their life, liberty, welfare, or property. If a jury made its decision out of ignorance, malice, whimsy, or on the basis of irrational and biased thought processes, we arguably should not and probably wouldn't regard the jury's decision as authoritative or legitimate. Instead, we think the criminal has a right to a trial conducted by competent people in good faith. In many respects, electoral decisions are similar to jury decisions. They're also high stakes. They can result in innocent people losing their lives, liberty, welfare, or property. If the legitimacy and authority of a jury decision depends upon the jury making a competent decision in good faith, then perhaps so should the legitimacy and authority of most other governmental decisions, including the decisions that electorates and their representatives make. Now suppose, in light of widespread voter ignorance and irrationality, it turns out that democratic electorates tend to make incompetent decisions. Shock. If so, then this seems to provide at least presumptive grounds for favouring epistocracy over democracy. Do you agree with that? Do you follow that line of reasoning? Uh, you know, I follow that line of reasoning 
I, the difficult, I guess the difficult thing is both a question of faith, but also, uh, faith is a strong word. It's a question of how much you, how cynical you are of the average voter, right? Because it's easy to say that, I mean, I do roughly agree with that, but I'm also conscious that like, it's easy to say, oh, anyone who just doesn't agree with me is, is, you know, clearly incompetent or whatever, right? That doesn't actually capture the plurality of society and the different viewpoints that exist, right? Uh, so that's the kind of thing you're trying to balance. Because do I agree with that? Yes, largely. Um, but, you know, is it also an easy way to just shut down or ignore people you don't agree with? You just label them as incompetent and incompetent people shouldn't be able to vote. This is the problem we we're saying earlier. We're like, there's some biases in like how you decide to draw those lines. It's, it's very risky. And I mean, I think the analogy with the jury is powerful because juries do, uh, there, there is like a selection process, right, for juries. And you do have to undergo, you, you have to meet criteria. I think if you're proven to be racist or prejudiced in certain ways you'll be excluded from the jury so I, I i guess that's why why he makes that analogy in particular just to say there's a certain level of competency required which we don't require for voting on the other hand exactly like you say there's there's that risk of like hijacking uh, you know hijacking that policy and, and disagreeing with people just on the basis that they disagree with you and then whoever's in power kind of holds the cards so you, you could see that sort of trending in, a, in an ugly or an unfair way um so that covers a little bit of epistocratic or epistocracy generally aristocracy the distinction between aristocracy and epistocracy is how you actually define who this demos is right so epistocracy is based on competency and to be fair in the original understanding of the term i think aristotle largely like overlapped with that aristotle obviously famous ancient greek philosopher uh, where it should be the people who are best qualified does that mean aristocracy it means in the traditional sense they should be very very similar it says aristocracy does that literally define as like yeah because you said epistocracy was like decisions by the by the knowledgeable right so is aristocracy decisions by by the aristotles where does what does aristotle in this case it's he would define it as the people best qualified to rule which isn't necessarily just intellectual it's, it can also be moral character right you know it, it could be in his case it would be the most virtuous people right if you think in ancient greek terms their perspective of morality was it wasn't kind of consequentialist or deontological rules-based or outcomes-based they really were focused on virtue-based ethics right if you take aristotle's teacher plato his ideal would be the philosopher king right you'd have the most virtuous person you'd have the the best person and they would just make all the decisions they would be a benevolent dictator and aristotle i think takes a more realistic approach says, like, oh, you know that's not going to happen it's too uh, risky that you're putting all your eggs in that one basket one person it's better to use the infrastructure of democracy but then limit the demos to an upper class of the most kind of best qualified to rule the a mixture of the most virtuous and most intelligent it really actually largely overwraps yeah i was going to say where is the distinction is that is i mean you mentioned the word upper class is it is it literally just like there's a sort of societal uh, line as well as sort of competency that's drawn in an aristocracy or? it's virtue virtue and competency Right, so it's a lit. It's 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 subtly different because you know a virtuous person would be intelligent, I suppose, in 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 the ancient Greek view. However, it's worth noting the colloquial use of the term aristocracy or aristocrat refers more. So so the way that you know people talk about aristoc uh, and uh, or aristocracy now is actually more about having a small class um, of hereditary rulers who are you know basically like you have your dukes and counts and whatever and they will make decisions collectively so that's generally what aristocracy is meant is used as now traditionally it'd be more like an very similar to an epistocracy now it actually means you have a small class of people with hereditary titles and they make the decisions yeah that's actually i mean that's my colloquial understanding of the word as well so it's, it's interesting looking at it's 
its roots. Yes, that's actually what the, it's interesting. That's how the word is used now, but the ancient Greek meaning uh, and the person it's named for, you know, would probably prefer an epistocracy over a modern understanding of an aristocracy. Yeah. And I mean, so we talked a little bit about Greek democracy um, when we did the crossover episode with Good in Theory. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's in our back catalogue. Check it out. Well, to, to be fair, actually, to some extent, to some extent, these exist, right? We have the House of Lords. Yeah, we and do. And those are we hereditary. Uh, they, can, they can vote new people in. Um, but only the lords can vote new people in and then the titles are hereditary and they get to go and ratify decisions that the, um, you know, increasingly it's a ceremonial thing, but it still exists technically. True, true. And uh, yeah, to, to link all this back to, to the title question for today's episode, it's interesting that we talked about this on the episode with Cliff, but even Greek democracy, which, you know, people will sometimes sort of refer back to as uh, it's the origins of democracy, et cetera, et cetera. Women, slaves and children were all excluded from voting in Greek democracy. And actually, I mean, you know, you look, you look at the history of sort of voting rights and stuff, and obviously women only got the vote in the early 20th century in, in, in the UK and the US and other places. Uh, I mean, the Civil Rights Act meant that it wasn't extended even more widely until in the USA in, in, until like the 1960s. I mean, it was only dropped from 21 to 18 in the 1980s. So there's, um, yeah, it, it, it's... It's still, some, I mean, it's something that people have updated throughout history. Uh, and so there's not been a long history in the, uh, in the context of like all human history of, of, of it being as widespread as we like to think now. But um, yeah, uh, segueing that back, um, what, 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 what's your sort of general vibe on, on, on where we should draw the line? And, or, or are you just like pro-epistocracy? <laughs> Let's limit it to the competent. I, I actually think the reality, okay, I would say in an, an ideal kind of intellectualized world, you know, if we're just making stuff up. Yeah, I mean, in the perfect world, just have the philosopher king, right? Uh, just have a benevolent dictator. Uh, <laughs> and it shall be yeah, me. <laughs> and it should be. No, but I mean, like, I think a practical one is actually probably take it the other way. Like open democracy more. Don't limit by age so much. I understand the point with the age thing, but I think excluding even 15-year-olds is a bit ridiculous considering when we allow, you know, we if someone's 30, but disinterested and consumes mostly fox news fox news we don't exclude them why should we exclude a 15 year old you know on the basis of in, on the ba- on the implied basis of a lack of competency really quickly on aristocracy just read you something quickly on this um some examples uh, we got the brahmin caste in india the spartiates in sparta patricians in rome and of course the medieval nobility in europe uh, those are all examples of uh, social aristocracy uh, aristocracy nobilities most such social aristocracies uh, both legally and factually have been hereditary yeah, which I guess is the problem, isn't it? However, the distinction between birth or like hereditary and non-hereditary is a bit, you know, wishy-washy because even in high, like strict caste societies, you know, some lowborn people do still climb up um, and some highborn people do still slide down in disgrace. A Marquis de Sade style. On the other hand, it's, it's also worth thinking, and you know, we can think about this. We, we talk a lot about inequality in the podcast in various episodes. You can also, even if you have like a totally open aristocracy, there's some stickiness, right? Like basically, if your parents were part of the demos, there's an overwhelming likelihood that you would be too. Mm, interesting. Quick one, technocracy. Um, I, Jake, do you want to tell us a little bit about this one? God, uh, I think if I remember correctly, technocracy is uh, it's on the basis of expertise, right? It's expertise in a specific area. So yeah, you'd have experts in health as the minister of health, as opposed to say Matt Hancock. Yeah, <laughs> you'd have experts in in justice, uh, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You'd probably have like a senior judge as the minister of justice, that kind of thing. Yes, exactly. So in a technocracy, to be fair, a technocracy again. You're, generally, you're using the infrastructure of democracy. It refers less to who you're making part of the demos and more, actually, you could have a technocracy that totally removes the need for voting. It could be non-democratic. It could use democratic infrastructure, not necessarily. 
The point is that the people actually doing the jobs are, are in the jobs on the basis of their competency at that specific thing. Then who becomes like the orchestrator between them? How do you become a master at that? How, how do you develop expertise in that? And with all of these, anytime you say like, oh, you know, we'll do it based on whatever thing that we want to measure by, expertise, knowledge, competency, whatever. You then have this impossible question of like, well, what's the measure and how do we make sure that that measure is fair? And then what's the infrastructure for us deciding that we have that measure, right? Yeah, it's a little bit more analogous to like how private companies run. I feel like with the technocracy, it's basically, you know, you're promoted on the basis of having done good service. And there's certainly a kind of efficiency argument to be made in favor of that. There, well, there's, it's pro, it's for and against, right? I mean, America's actually a good example of this, right? President wins a pre- an election and then puts forward candidates to be his ministers. And generally, they're people who are relative experts. So it's something of a technocracy. But the problem is that, you know, being an expert in a thing, say, for example, healthcare, being a, a, a you know, a world-class doctor is not the same as understanding how best to implement, you know, public policy through the uh, instruments of government, right? Which, so there's kind of a for and against, because like, it, it does annoy me that, you know, for example, we have people like Matt Hancock who know nothing about healthcare, being our health minister, was our health minister, no longer, now he lives in the jungle somewhere. <laughs> However, <laughs> reference him being on I'm a Celebrity, right? <laughs> yes, I'm a Celebrity, yeah, it's a TV show, he went on a reality TV show, so stupid. However, they do understand the infrastructure, they do understand the infrastructure of government well, which can arguably make them more effective, and then they're just surrounded by experts who advise them on, you know, hey, here's the pros and cons of these decisions, you know how to actually make things happen, um, go and make them happen. Yeah, which, which actually, to be fair, is another thing I, I kind of buy as a reasonable argument. I had another funny story about Matt Hancock, uh, just to sort of highlight the ludicrousness of it, which was one of his credited successes in his tenure as health minister was that he sort of masterminded or at least was behind the sort of vaccine rollout and it was done quite efficiently. <laughs> and in an interview, he claimed that this was because he'd watched the movie Contagion and was just like, vaccines are going to be key to getting us out there. So he was he was just like red hot on making sure that happened efficiently. But you sort of think like, <laughs> that just seems like a bit of a, I don't know, it just seems like a bit of a childish reason, doesn't it? <laughs> anyway. Way. You can see the pros and cons, yeah. So we talked a lot through the different forms of uh, democracy. Jake, you asked me and I said, uh, you know, in an ideal world, intellectualized answer would be like philosopher king. Practical one is like actually extend who gets to vote. What's your thoughts? What sort of what sort of government do you think would be more effective? Uh, don't look, just don't I, just I, I, answer. I <laughs> think no, no, I actually I have a different opinion to you here because I I feel like I do have a natural lean towards epistocracy. And I feel like even though it's hard to draw the lines of how you define that and, and how you exclude people i mean that's that's kind of the point right it's that's that's the sort of in some ways the detail is the is the is the fun part of uh, how many people do you feel like should be excluded for it to really be an epistocracy because we i mean okay we exclude all 16 year olds call it what in the uk that's what 10 million out of um 65 million yeah, like true. people under 18 um i'm guessing i don't know how many people do you think should be, how many people should form the Demos in your view? I mean, it's hard to give you a percentage answer without it being totally random, but I, I could say, I think I genuinely am kind of in favor of a maximum voting limit or a voting limit based on, I mean, there are going to be people who aren't totally compass mentis as they hit a certain age. I definitely hold on to that feeling of unfairness that there were people who voted in Brexit who probably died a year later and imposed it on 16 year olds who didn't have the chance to vote who now have to live with it for the rest of their lives. Not that I'm horribly bitter. No, you don't but... sound it. You don't sound it. So, so what, <laughs> what would be your suggested method? Like how small should the demos be? And what would be your suggested method of, of filtering people? Would it just be more age limits or would there be like, would you do, does everyone do an IQ test? And if you're above a certain number, you get to vote or like, what would you do? Man, I know this is, this is a hard bit. And I, I, I don't really like age limits. I, I sort of prefer the notion of competency. Mm-hmm. But also, would you exclude people or would you wait or would you wait some people more? Yeah, this is interesting because waiting people more 
there's a there's a certain incentive incentivization factor there that <laughs> encourages um encourages participation right like whatever you devise as your as your testing framework if people get more votes for being more qualified at least it's something that people you know it, it's a good filter for how, how people care some kind of test some kind of literacy test some kind of indication of like you understand these issues and, and you're sort of it pushes you to take the time to engage i think i think the problem we have at the moment isn't it's i i definitely worry about sort of media capture but if, if if anything, I I think the reason I I like this kind of approach, just in theory, I'm, I'm I, I don't. I don't necessarily think it's practical, but in theory, the reason I like it is because it, it incentivizes engagement in constructive way. And I, I don't think it should be, you know, it, it shouldn't be a test that's sort of based on political viewpoint. It's it's more just like a general competency. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm not no, saying no, I get you, like, I get you. if you're not left enough, you, 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 you can't qualify. It's just like you need to know enough about how things run. And, and I got you. you so know, the, 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 uh, maybe there should be a basic, you know, maybe to vote, there's a basic questionnaire ahead of time. And it's like, you know, it, it basic competency stuff or awareness stuff where Maybe you ask like, hey, you know, what percentage of the population do you think are immigrants? Like 0.1%, 10% or 50 or 50%. Yeah. And anyone who puts 50% is clearly just not clued up enough on, on what's actually going on, right? <laughs> this is it. I mean, there's a sort of fact checking element. There's a kind of conceptual part like it doesn't literally need to be this but something like you know if, if interest rates go up what happens just something to like indicate economic literacy for example it doesn't have to be that question that's probably a bad example i just thought of but stuff that means that like when people are reading about policy uh, and then and then in taking whatever sort of spin they've they've received they have at least a kind of understanding of what's going on this is as i say this is in theory i mean i like the idea i i, I doubt it's actually that practicable but that's my sort of theoretic answer got you interesting guys thank you for listening as always send us your thoughts leave us a review and we will see you next time much love bye guys